It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for the, for the warm welcome. This is, my, this is my fourth time in Hong Kong. The first time was back in 1991, when I was 20, just before I became a Christian, actually. Um, and I love it. It's changed a lot over the years, and obviously, when we were having the conversation about me coming over, we didn't know that there was going to be the, the troubles that have been happening, and the protests, and the, and the tensions. But, as is so often the way in God's providence, the talks which I was planning to give, it seems to me, are directly relevant to a situation in which Christian believers feel sometimes divided, uh, sometimes under pressure, uh, facing maybe persecution in the future or presently. And so, again, in God's providence, it's amazing how he does this. The talks, I think, speak directly to the situation. So I hope it'll be a blessing. I hope it'll be encouraging. It's, this first talk is quite heavy because we're getting into some heavy stuff. So I just want to sort of flag that up. There are not many jokes in it, just so you're aware. I know that we've said I did comedy, but this is, this is weighty stuff. What does it mean to follow Jesus here in Hong Kong? What does it mean to uh, be under pressure? Um, what does it mean to look forward and think, do you know what? The future could be really difficult. It might be. How am I going to persevere? How can I be a good witness to the people around me who don't know Jesus and who seem to be losing their heads in lots of ways? Um, and here's the other thing which I think is really striking about the passage that we're going to be looking at. We'll get into this. We say that we are followers of Jesus. Most of us here, I'm guessing, have been Christians for many years. But when we face periods of insecurity, when we find ourselves being fearful, sometimes that reveals something about us. It's like our hearts are sponges, and you don't know what is in the sponge until you squeeze the sponge. And, and sometimes fear and insecurity and division can be like squeezing the sponge and you see what's inside. And for many years you might have thought, yeah, good, going great as a Christian, it's all good. But then your heart gets squeezed by difficult circumstances and you look at what's inside your heart and you go, whoa, I, was not, I did not expect to see that in my heart. And so it's very revealing. So it's difficult, it's challenging, but I hope that uh, what we see here is going to be helpful. So as we consider this phrase, follow me, follow me is the connection between the three talks that I'm going to be giving. I want us to start by looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. You've got them there in your uh, handout. Is the, who produced the booklet for this? Was, is the person here who made the booklet, was it Mary? She did a great job. Just wanted to say that. So chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. I think this is foundational. These are words which appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I'm assuming that Jesus does not want us to miss this. This is important. So let's pray. Let's pray that we would hear him speak to us this morning. Father, would you please open our eyes? Would you please open our hearts, prepare us for what we're about to hear? Um, would you 
comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? And I pray that when we leave here today, we would not be unchanged. In your mercy, uh, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It's very easy when you're a single person, which I was for 25 years as a Christian before I got married. It's very easy as a single person to to imagine that you would be a wonderful parent. You think, I think I'd be quite a good dad. You know, it'd be all right. How difficult can it be? And then you have a child, which is what happened to us a year ago. Dear little Adeline, who is one year old. And suddenly, you realise that it is very, very different from what you thought it would be. It's very easy in your imagination to just think, oh, it'd be fantastic. But of course, when you're imagining what it's like to be a parent, you don't think about changing diapers or changing nappies 10 times a day, right? You don't think about that. It just doesn't, you don't imagine it. And by the way, is that, is that normal 10 times a day? I don't know if that's normal. I'm not sure what her mother is feeding her. But, but it's, anyway, that's, maybe, maybe it's just me. Anyway, I never imagined that I would spend hours picking bits of pasta out of the carpet. I didn't think that was going to be my life. I didn't think that I would repeatedly get woken up at 4 a.m. in the morning, and then if I got out of bed, there would be so many abandoned toys on the floor that I would risk serious injury just getting to the bathroom. I didn't imagine that. It just doesn't figure in your thinking. Our imaginations, I think, can be very, very um, forgiving places. It's much harder to be a good parent when you're doing it in reality. Much harder. Don't you find that, those of you who are parents? Uh, Not long after my daughter was born, uh, I said to a good friend of mine, is it normal for babies to to cry constantly? Is that normal? And he said, yeah, that's just what babies do. And I said, well, nobody told me at the hospital. I mean, nobody told me that. So you you just get on with it. So I think it's the same with these three words, uh, these words of Jesus. Deny self, take up your cross, follow me. So in the vacuum of our own imaginations, we think, well, of course, we follow Jesus. No problem. Sometimes there are some difficult things, but in the main, it's okay. But then when hardship comes, it can be very revealing and very difficult. And I wonder if, this is just just a thought, I wonder if it's particularly difficult for those of us whose Christian lives, for the most part, have been relatively comfortable. We've not had to face, for the most part, opposition. Um, certainly in the UK, where I grew up, being a Christian was okay. It, was, it wasn't a great deal, a great problem. But in the last 10, 15 years, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, saying at work, I'm a Christian, suddenly has become a problem. You could lose your job, people could, could ostracize you, Um, it suddenly becomes very difficult. And so I wonder if it's quite difficult for those of us who've been in relatively comfortable situations to really understand what Jesus means when he says here, follow me. And it was certainly difficult for Peter. So the Apostle Peter just doesn't get it. Uh, If you look, um, you just look down at at the Bible there, just a moment earlier you can see in your handouts Jesus has been telling the disciples that he must suffer and be killed. And what does Peter say? 
Peter effectively says to Jesus, he says, no way, that is not going to happen on my watch. No way. That's maybe the, the New Living Translation of what he says. He says, you've got to be kidding. And you remember Jesus' response. You, you see it there. Jesus says in the strongest possible terms, he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. What does that mean? What does it mean? On one level, Jesus means, listen, he's just saying, get away from me. That's effectively what the phrase means, get away from me. But it means more than that, I think. When Jesus says, get behind me, what is he doing? He's saying, Peter, do you know what following looks like? It means you get behind me. You follow where I go. You do not call the shots. It's not that you go in front and then I go behind you. You get behind me. That's what following looks like. And that's the backdrop for this verse we're about to concentrate on, verse 24. It's clear that the disciples have not yet grasped what following Jesus means. And I wonder if that's true for us too. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One man who uh, lived out that reality vividly in his life was the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you, you know about Bonhoeffer? So he was a pastor, German pastor in the Second World War. And uh, he got into trouble with the Nazis because he was associated with a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, so first of all, he was moved to the Gestapo's high security prison, and then he was moved to Buchenwald concentration camp, and then after that he was moved to Flossenburg concentration camp. And there, he was called before a drumhead court-martial. Without witnesses, there was no record of proceedings, and there was no defence for him either. And the very next day, on the 9th of April 1945, he was hanged at dawn at the age of 39, just two weeks before American soldiers liberated the camp. And as Bonhoeffer studied verse 24, he summarized it very famously in just three words. He said, Jesus is telling us, come and die. Come and die. You see, as Christians, death isn't just something that comes at the end of our lives. For us, death is something that comes at the beginning of our Christian lives and happens all the way through. That's what Jesus is saying. And for most of us, the death, of course, is metaphorical rather than literal. In Hong Kong, in the UK, in the US, we can still speak freely. We can still worship freely for the most part. But history teaches us that that is the exception rather than the rule. That is unusual. This is Bonhoeffer again, quote, the cross is laid on every Christian. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, Come and die. 
It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But, says Bonhoeffer, it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. End quote. Well, let's try and unpack those two things. Deny self, take up your cross. I just want to unpack those two things. First of all, what exactly does it mean to deny self? We talk about self-denial a lot, don't we, if we're doing a, doing a diet or something like that. But what does self-denial mean here? Actually, later in Matthew's Gospel, we get a vivid picture of what denying self looks like, what denying looks like. Can anybody think of something a bit later in Matthew's Gospel where we hear about somebody denying something? Anybody? Just shout it. Yes, somebody said it. Peter. Peter denies Christ, right? We know what denying looks like because Jesus did, uh, Peter did it to Jesus. It's exactly the same word used here in verse 24. So you know the story of, of what happens with Peter. He's sitting there. Jesus has been arrested. He's in the high, with the high priest. Jesus is, uh, Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. And he's warming himself by the fire. And somebody comes and asks Peter if he knows Jesus. You were associated with him, weren't you? And what does Peter do? He says no. He, he denies Jesus three times. That is what denying Christ looks like. Vehemently renouncing, definitely turning away from, completely disavowing. And Jesus is saying here in chapter 16, verse 24, that is what you must do to yourself. You remember what Peter says to the slave girl in the courtyard? He says it twice. He says, I do not know the man. He, she says, you were with him, weren't you? You're one of them. You're one of the disciples. He says, no, I, I do not know the man. Now, what would it look like for us as believers in Hong Kong to say that to ourselves? You look at yourself, you look at your comfort-loving self, your approval-loving self, your security-loving self, and you say, I don't know you anymore. I don't recognize you. That is a person that I no longer associate with. That is what Jesus is calling us to do here in verse 24. It's remarkable. It's remarkably challenging. Let me just give another uh, illustration of this. I don't know if this is true, this story. It might be apocryphal, but I think it's a very good example of what I'm trying to say. Um, St. Augustine, um, the famous church father over there in Africa, uh, before he was a believer, he was a real ladies' man. Uh, he, he, he had multiple partners. You can read about this if you read his book, Confessions. It's a remarkable book. And the story goes that after he became a Christian, Augustine was walking down the street, and he saw, just ahead of him, he saw one of his old mistresses. And so he sees her, and he immediately turns sideways and walks away the other direction. And she cries out to him, Augustine, it is I. And you know what Augustine says? He says, I know, but it is not I. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? I know, but it's not 
I, I don't associate with that person anymore. It's not me. I'm not the me you think I am. That's not who I am. You see, denying self. I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm a new person. To borrow some terminology from Twitter, it is not possible for us to follow Christ unless we unfollow ourselves. We've got to unfollow ourselves. If you're a believer, can I ask, and I know this is a challenging thing for a Saturday morning, but have you come to terms with that yet? Have you come to terms with it? What will it look like for you to unfollow yourself at school, uh, at college, in your career, in your marriage, in your church? What would it mean to unfollow your own rights in order to follow Jesus? To give up your rights as Jesus gave them up? Or to unfollow your own comfort? Have you denied those things as strongly as Peter denied Christ? That's denying self. Secondly, let's look at the next little bit. Jesus calls us to take up our cross. Take up our cross. Now, I don't know if it's the same here in Hong Kong, but certainly for me, um, that is a th- that's a throwaway phrase. So English people will often say, you know, oh, I've got a bit of a bad back. Uh, That's just a cross I have to bear. You know that phrase, it's thrown around very easily. Um, Maybe there's a particularly troublesome person at the office and we say, yeah, they're a bit annoying, it's just a cross I've got to bear. And I think we throw that phrase around so easily because unlike the disciples that Jesus is talking to there, we have never seen somebody crucified. I hope. We've never seen that. But they had. They had. And so for Jesus to say, you've got to take up your cross, is not only shocking, it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So the Roman orator Cicero, who was alive just before Christ, he described crucifixion like this. He says, the executioner, the veil that covers the condemned man's head, the cross of crucifixion, These are horrors which ought to be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts and his gaze and his hearing. So imagine the sorts of sounds you might hear as somebody's being crucified. And he's saying you shouldn't shouldn't even have to think about what that sounds like. It's so horrific. So Cicero says, it is utterly wrong that a Roman citizen, a free man, would ever be compelled to endure or tolerate such dreadful things. You see, the cross was made so deliberately gruesome, so absolutely awful, that any slave who was passing by and was considering rebelling against the Roman authorities, they would look at the crucified person and they would say, however bad my life is, it is not worth risking that. It's just not worth the risk. But Jesus, Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you are truly my follower, this is your life now. This is the shape of your life. And of course, 
we want to be careful here. It's not that every believer necessarily faces a literal death. Of course not. Um, Some disciples, like Peter, were literally crucified. Other disciples, like John, for example, um, he didn't face that sort of death. He certainly faced trials in his life. But death looked different for that disciple. And it'll be different for us too. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. This is a, it's a somewhat trivial uh, illustration. I'm a huge Tottenham Hotspur fan. That's my football team. See Mr. Alderborough at the back. That's, I didn't realise you were a Spurs fan. Brother, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? So if you, if you have a favourite sports team or a favourite... Uh, what's the big sport here in, in uh, Hong Kong? What would the big sport be? Second, soccer. soccer. Okay, so you call it soccer, but it's the same sport. So there you go. The, prop, the proper name is football, just so you know, because you know we invented it, right? So, you know. um, but yeah, so soccer, football, um, and when you love a team, when you follow a team, what does that look like? You identify with them, right? So if they win, you feel incredible. You feel on top of the world. It's almost as if you you scored the winning goal yourself. Um, But if they lose, if they're like Tottenham right now and they're going through a bad patch, you just feel dreadful. It's awful. So do pray for Tim at the back there. Please do pray for him. It's very tough being a Spurs fan. And if we're following, if we're followers of Christ, I think there is, I know it's a silly analogy, but I think there's there's something in that. Because what what is it we're doing as we look at Christ? We're identifying with him. We're identifying, so his victories are our victories. His suffering is our suffering. And so Jesus is saying, that is what following me looks like. And have you come to terms with that yet? Are you so closely identified with Christ that actually suffering is something that you accept because you know that Jesus has been through it? So where he goes, you go. A.W. Tozer um, said this. He said, to carry a cross means that you are walking away And you are never coming back. Wow. You're walking away and you're never coming back. Have you come to terms with that yet? You may have been a a churchgoer for many years. Um, It's very familiar to you. But have you said to Christ, I'm going to follow you. And I know that means I'm never coming back. We sang it in the the song earlier, never, never turning back. I know it means I'm never never coming back. I will die to my former self. I will say I do not know the man. I will renounce it with all the force of Peter in the courtyard. And when I do sin, when I do stumble and fall, I will pick up my cross again. However much it hurts my career, my popularity, my friendships, my prospects, my life. And I will keep following because I'm never coming back. Have you done that yet? Have you done that yet? It's incredibly tempting, isn't it, to try and uh, bypass the cross that Jesus says we must take up. It's really tempting. And actually, Jesus knew that temptation as well, didn't he? We know that. This is why, uh, this is a a sidebar, but I think this is one of the reasons why the Gospels are so obviously not fabricated. They're not made up by somebody as a story. You would never have your Lord and Master struggling with the temptation to give it all up. Struggling with the temptation to avoid the cross, the suffering. But that's exactly what happens to Jesus. You remember 
The devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I imagine it would be like being up in the mountains around Hong Kong, looking down at those beautiful skyscrapers, the water glittering. And you know, he says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I'll give you this. Satan is saying, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, you can have a crown without a cross. You can have the glory without the Golgotha. I think that's why in verse 23, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus hears in the words of Peter the same temptation that he faced at the beginning of his ministry. And the temptation is, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? A cross, really? No, you don't have to go through the cross to get to the glory. You don't have to. Let me show you a better way. And maybe you can hear a similar voice. You know, this British guy just comes here from thousands of miles away. He doesn't know our situation. He's living in Florida with his palm trees and all the rest of it. That's all very well for him. Of course you can be a Christian without speaking about Jesus at the office. Of course you can follow Christ without really pouring out your life in service to the other people at the church, even those you may disagree with. Of course you can. Of course you can follow Christ without sacrificing the drive for more money and more comfort and more security and more... I don't know, what would it be? What would it be for you? Don't, you don't have to shout it out, but what would it be? What is the thing that we're tempted to say, actually... I can follow Jesus, but I, I don't need to do that. Where's the temptation for us? But I want to say by way of encouragement that on the other side of that fear, on the other side of it is freedom, just liberation, joy. There's a, have any of you seen the, um, the miniseries Band of Brothers? Did that make it over here? I know it's a few years old now. But it's set in the, in the Second World War, and there's this wonderful moment where um, they're, they're, all of these soldiers are facing um, incoming fire, so the bullets are whizzing over their heads, and one of the soldiers drops down into a trench, and he just basically huddles there in the trench. He just is almost like in the fetal position. He doesn't want to get out. He's terrified. He's shaking. He just can't move. He's paralyzed with fear. And the next day, when the bullets have stopped flying overhead, the captain strides over to the trench where this guy is. And he says, you know, so what, what was your problem? Why didn't you get out of the trench? And the, the guy's still paralysed. And the captain looks down at him and he says, do you know what your problem is? You don't realise you're already dead. That's your problem. You don't realise you're already dead. And I know this sounds like a strange thing to say by way of encouragement, but you know what it says in Galatians 2, right? Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm already dead. It is no longer I who live. And I think one of the reasons that we can be quite fearful as Christians, I'm very introverted as well. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I'm, I'm actually very introverted and, and can be quite fearful. I like to please people. And I think one of the reasons that I'm so fearful is because I don't realise I'm already dead. <laughs> I know that sounds like a strange thing to say, but if I, if I believe Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ, so therefore what can people do to me? What can men do to me? Why would I be scared? I'm already dead. I'm united with Christ. 
I've ascended with him to the right hand of the Father. All the glory that is his will be mine. That's unshakable. So why am I so afraid of what other people think or what other people might do to me? We're already dead, brothers and sisters. But many of us, of course, are still cowering. You know, we're, we're friends here. We can be honest. We should be honest. I think many of us are very fearful. And particularly with what we look at here in Hong Kong. So what do we do? What do we do? How can we deal with this fear in our hearts? If only we could understand how Jesus was able to go to the cross, then maybe we can go to the cross as well. Well, of course, we do know. We do know how Jesus was able to go to the cross. In the book of Hebrews, it says this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear that? Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He had his eyes fixed on some greater joy that made taking up his cross possible. That's the only way he got through. The same was true of Moses. Hebrews tells us Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. That was his particular cross that he had to take up. Rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the reward. Do you hear that? Moses was trading in a smaller joy being identified with the royalty of Egypt for the infinitely greater joy of being identified with the royalty of heaven. And he considered that the two were not even worth comparing. Doesn't that remind you of Paul in Romans chapter 8 where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or Philippians chapter 3, which says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've counted the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think the reason that we don't take up our cross is not because we value our comfort too highly but because we don't value our comfort highly enough. We don't go to the cross because we value our security and our wealth and our comfort, but actually we don't value those things highly enough. If we did value those things as highly as we ought to, we would go to the cross because it's the only place that those things can be protected and insured for us. That's the only place. Otherwise, we'll lose those things. Do you believe that? I know we say it a lot, but do you believe it? Because if you do, then you'll endure anything. Endure anything to get more, more of Christ. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, you can see it there, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will find it. 
Those who take up their cross are saying to Jesus, I'm going to follow you and I'm never coming back. And those who take up their cross never want to come back. They never want to because the wealth they find in Christ is so much better. Um, I like the, um, the writer Flannery O'Connor. She's an American uh, novelist. She was. And she says, if you want to get the most joy you possibly can in life, always you must renounce a lesser good for a greater. You must renounce a lesser good for a greater. So in order to grab hold of the joy and the security and the comfort that is in Christ, we have to let go of what's behind us. We can't grab hold of him unless we let go of that. That's the picture. And my question for you this morning is, have you lost your life yet? Have you lost your life yet? If someone were to look at your life, maybe from the outside, uh, is that a good description of the way you live? I know, exactly, amen. R.C. Sproul, uh, my, was my boss, he's now gone to be with the Lord, but R.C. Sproul writes somewhere that the Christian life is a throwaway life. The Christian life is a throwaway life. Is that how you see your own life? <laughs> it's quite challenging, isn't it? Do you see your life as a throwaway life, something that you can joyfully just give away to others? Can I say again, if losing your life does seem too much, if it seems too much for you this morning, it's not because your desire for happiness is too great. It's because it's too small. It's too small. I'm sure you know this quote, you probably knew it was coming, the, the C.S. Lewis quote about this is so familiar, but forgive me as I read it again. He says, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Many of us are unsure. Certainly when I was 19, 20, I used to ask everybody, I don't know what to do with my life. What should I do with my life? I don't know whether I want to do this. Do I want to be an actor? Do I want to be a comedian? Do I, yeah, what do I do? What's the right answer? The right answer is, what you want to do with your life is lose it for Christ. Give it away. Throw it away for others. That's what you should do. C.S. Lewis again, nothing in, you that has, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. That's an amazing statement. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. That's the wonder of the gospel. I think if there is a secret to knowing Christ... And to following Christ, I think it's this. Being convinced in any given moment that he is better than the thing you're being tempted with. So in that moment, you're opening up a window on your internet browser that you shouldn't be looking at, something you shouldn't be looking at. How do you fight that? You say to yourself, 
Knowing Christ is better than pornography. It's better. I get more joy, more satisfaction in him than I will get from doing that. And we turn away from it. That the victory of Christ is better even than the victory of some political cause that we might be particularly wedded to. And therefore I want him more than I want those things. Does your conversation with other Christians, does your social media feed reflect that? And by the way, that is not to say that we shouldn't care what happens politically. That's not a, we should care about those things. But we are not, first and foremost, citizens of Hong Kong. We are not, first and foremost, citizens of the UK or the States. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is a greater joy. That is an infinitely greater security. That's an infinitely greater wealth. Just days before Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, knew that he was going to be executed, he crossed paths with an English prisoner called Payne Best. And he asked him, he said, if he were ever released, he said to this, this English prisoner, would you pass on a message to a friend of mine in England? And those turned out to be his last recorded words. Bonhoeffer's message was this. His message was, this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. This is the beginning of life. Have you lost your life yet? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Not because you don't want to live, but because you do want to live with all your heart. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you've brought us here this morning. Thank you that you've set your seal upon us. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us brotherhood and sisterhood in the power of the gospel and because of our unity with Christ. I pray that today, in all that we think about, in all our conversation, would you make us aware of our glorious citizenship in heaven so that we think first and foremost of our citizenship there rather than our citizenship anywhere else. Please, would you deal with the fear in our hearts? Please, would you help us to see the wonder of the glory that is set before us so that we can go through suffering in this present time? Father, would you, would you work miracles in our heart? We confess that we are fearful people, we are comfort-seeking people, we are approval-seeking people. And I pray, Father, that you would undo all of that uh, damaging work in our hearts and instead set our eyes on the joy that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.